we're programmed by society to be fearful. You know, we live in a shame-based, fear-based society where we're striving might and main to succeed, to make something of ourselves. And so we're functioning a lot from the fear of failure. And that fear of failure can lead to with a feeling of not being good enough, being overwhelmed by it. And that stress is the way in which you relate to it that way. You're relating to it fearfully, anxiously, pessimistically. Being happy matters. It comes first before making money. It comes first. And then, you know, it's a very interesting thing the research shows is that it's not success that leads to happiness. It's a state of happiness, an attitude of happiness that actually produces the brain power that creates the success in the first place. So our whole culture has the horse or the cart before the horse, right? And yet we believe that. And look at all the suffering we go through believing that, you know, and the struggle we go through trying to succeed when we've got the cart before the horse. You know, come back, come back inside, come back inside, find that happiness. And out of that, this great infusion of creativity and intelligence will emerge from that, which will inspire your success which will drive your success. That's a mind blower when I tell people that. Welcome to Linda's Corner, where we bring more hope, healing, and happiness to the world. My name is Linda Bjork, and today we're going to be talking about ending stress. I'm delighted to welcome Don Goey. Don managed the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University Medical School pioneered an approach for overcoming catastrophic life events, and is the author of the bestseller, The End of Stress, Four Steps to Rewire Your Brain. Don and his work have been featured on the Today Show, CNN, and NPR. You can reach Don at his website, theendofstressbook.com, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Welcome, Don. I'm so glad that you could join with me today. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about the idea of ending stress. Not just reducing stress, coping with stress, but ending it. And you have spent six years uh, directing research on how to do this. And I cannot wait to hear your findings. So what did this research show about how we can end stress? Well, about 20 years ago, maybe more now, um, neuroscience began to use fMRIs, you know, taking sort of real-time video of what's going on inside the brain. And um, at some point, one of them, Richard Davidson, very famous uh, neuropsychologist at the University of Wisconsin, he decided to poke inside and take a look at the brain of of, uh, Tibetan monks. And he discovered a a capacity um, of of a a brain networking, expansive brain network that... um, he had never seen before. And um, through studies that they did, they, they came to the realization, the conclusion that this expansion of, of um, particularly higher brain networks was the result of their meditative, mindful, spiritual practice, that that kind of a practice had a direct impact on the quality of these people's brains. And so they began to study ordinary people doing um, doing meditation, doing mindfulness kinds of things. And what they 
uh, found there was that as somebody doing as little as five minutes a day began to see a a, a shift in in their brain function and in and you know their and, and in their quality of life. And so you know what it boils down to is that we're programmed by society um, to be fearful. Um, you know we live in a shame based fear based society where we're striving might and main to succeed to make something of ourselves and so we're functioning a lot from the fear of failure and um and that fear of failure uh can lead to not feeling like we're not you know as we approach difficult challenges and problems um we may initially uh move into them with a feeling of not being good enough being overwhelmed by it um and so you know the the original research in stress the breakthrough research in stress that happened by from uh, Richard Lazarus at University of California Berkeley defines stress in in two ways one there's what he called a stressor which is any kind of demand any kind of change any kind of imposition that you perceive um that you also perceive is overwhelming your resources and that stress is the way in which you relate to it that way. You're relating to it fearfully, anxiously, pessimistically. Uh, you know, your thoughts, instead of going up uh, up and, and feeling into feelings of being positive, are going down into feelings of negativity. That's stress. Stress is your reaction to the perception that this change, which is essentially neutral, you know, it's just life going up and down. Um, that it overwhelms your resources. And so what most people define as resources is money, um, power, other people's support, um, technical, uh, technology, you know, those kinds of things to bring to bear on a problem. And if you, if you, if you don't have enough of any of them, um, you know, this problem can really swell inside inside your mind, inside your imagination, right? So one of the things that people um, in almost invariably um, don't think of as a resource is their attitude. And attitude is a really powerful resource. I mean, attitude can shapeshift the situation. It can turn a problem into a challenge. You know, or it can turn a challenge into a problem. It, it can turn a, a can-do sort of feeling into a can't-do if it, if it shifts downward. And, you know, in terms of resources, the one thing that a human being always is in control of, in absolute control of, is their attitude. The, in terms of what the whether the world is going to cooperate with them giving you know providing enough money providing enough technology providing enough power you know political power to deal with the situation that's quite material in the world and nobody controls that completely not even the president of the United States right but the one thing that uh, human being does have complete control of is is their attitude and so that as they come into uh, a situation where there's a demand to change, a demand to deal with something, um, the the very first thing for people to grab hold of is their attitude. 
Um, and usually, you know, I've coached people, I've taken people, corporate people through a training in which I'm talking about the power of attitude. We're going through ways in which you, you evoke it, you know, you, you, you move through it. And, um, and then we arrive about a month into the training and I challenge them to do an exercise called the control exercise in which they talk about a problem that they felt overwhelming. And list the resources that they had to bring to bear to that problem. And, and it's very rare that anybody, even after a month of indoctrination, lists attitude. It just doesn't occur to us. And so what the research has found is that what these Tibetan monks have is a very peaceful, a very can-do, a very trusting, a high level of faith kind of attitude that enables them to face what is and to accept it as it is and to move into it you know with with the with self with that calm of self confidence and to do their best and and as they move through it not to judge themselves uh in any way shape or form for, for whatever the outcome might be other than to to question well did I do my best and if I didn't you know how how can I how can I improve on that kind of thing? And so what they see is is that those people that step in to this attitude it's really a spiritual attitude. And we can talk about what that means, but the spiritual attitude. Um, what what happens to them is that there's a part of your brain called the amygdala, the limbic system, which is the fear center, and it's where the stress response system is. Uh, it, you know, manifest what's it, what it's going to do, fight, flight, or freeze, right? So you got a problem that feels like a threat, like a threatening world bearing down on you. Uh, you feel this lack of resources to deal with it. And this amygdala throws you into survival mode, into fight, flight, or three, freeze. And you're having this, you're having this uh, stress reaction. And the problem with the Amygdala is that it's fully developed in a human being by the age of two, two years old. And that's why when we see somebody in a full-blown stress reaction, we say they're behaving like a two-year-old. Well, that's the part of the brain that was in charge of them. And the amygdala uh, is not able to discern the difference between what is a real and present danger and what is a mind-made sense of threat that often isn't even there except in your mind. And it's sort of like a person um, who mistakes a coiled uh, rope for a snake. And they they have this startle reaction, right? Well, we're, we're doing that with our mind. We're scaring ourselves. We're painting ourselves into these bleak corners, looking out at a threatening world. And it's setting off these fight, flight, or freeze reactions inside of us, uh, generally based upon no real threat to our well-being, or to our existence, right? And the more that happens, and particularly the more it's reinforced by the culture you're living in, that's basically, you know, streaming ads that are telling you basically you're not good enough. You know, you need to do something about your baldness. You need to go on a cruise. You need to, uh, you need, you know, you know our ads, they did a study of 900,000 people in Europe to find out what was the impact of advertising on people. And they came to one conclusion, and it was it made people feel bad about themselves. 
And it's because these ads are constantly trying to shame you into wanting to improve yourself with this or that product, right? So we're bombarded with that on the one hand. We're bombarded with this shame-based orientation to ourselves. And then on the other hand, we live in a a fear-based culture. Our culture uses fear a lot. Uh, Our our news media is um, full of it. You know, you turn on the news and that's what you get. Uh, People are afraid of the economy. Everybody's watching the stock market. Everybody right now is watching inflation. And the the information you're getting is scaring them, right? So it's all getting reinforced to for you to have this reaction within you of feeling threatened when no when in truth no real threat is there. You you still you're okay. You, you I'm know, not going to die if I don't go on a cruise. No, you're not. You're not going to die if you don't go on a cruise. You're not going to die if uh, if you live your life and never finish your to do list. You know, and so what spirituality is about is, first of all, being able to meet um, meet a challenge, meet a problem um, in a non-stressful way, which is to accept to accept what's happening as it is, just to accept it, you know, not to have the reaction. This shouldn't be happening or I can't do this. You know, that's a non-acceptance of what is. So the boss comes in and puts another thing on your already overburdened to-do list. And the if you don't want to stress, your initial reaction is to accept it. First of all, because if you don't accept it, you're in conflict with it. And if you're in conflict with it, you're you're now generating fear. And if you're generating fear, you're activating your amygdala. And pretty soon, your amygdala is going to start perceiving illusions, start, start catastrophizing. That kind of thing. And as we do that, we get caught in that cycle of fight, flight, or freeze reaction in, in this up and down world. That amygdala, that fear center, those networks, what the scientists saw, it grows. And it really, and, and what it does is release stress hormones, which have the effect of making it grow. It's, it's sort of like putting fertilizer on a plant, makes it grow. And but these uh, stress hormones chemically they're very toxic to your higher brain, your prefrontal cortex, a part of your brain that makes you a problem solver, that makes you intelligence, that make gives you that that connects you to positive emotion, that then connects your intelligence and positive emotion to imagination and creativity, and which when you're when those fu- those brain functions are working, um, you know you're in the zone, you're making it happen, you know you're loving it. You're loving, you're loving how things are working. You know, you're you're at the top of your game, and uh, well, those networks shrink, and you you lose that capacity. And what they found is that there's this property in the brain called neuroplasticity, which means that you can reverse that. And the way in which you reverse that, in other words, you can reverse it to the extent. That you actually, what's called pruning, you prune that fear center, that amygdala, where all those stress reactions are made, and expand those higher brain functions in which your intelligence, problem solving, um, ability to analyze, ability to think out of the box creatively, all those areas actually um, grow, they increase. It's called sprouting. So it's neuroplasticity about is pruning the fear center and sprouting the higher brain. And so the question is, well, how 
how does that happen? And the answer is through a shift in attitude and a shift in attitude towards that accentuates the positive and a shift in, and that shift in attitude is facilitated by and large through a, through a spiritual shift. And I don't mean being religious. You don't even have to b- believe in God. Um, it's a spiritual shift in which your value system begins to ac- accentuate being at peace. What is it that brings me to be at peace with this problem? Well, one very simple thing is to accept it as it is, right? Just that's my first step. Accept it. It's it's happening. That neutralizes it, right? To be, um, to have faith, to have faith in in um, who who you are and what you've done before, to lean in to to what you know about yourself and your capacity. Um, it's to be loving. It's to be forgiving. It's to um, be joyful. Uh, it's all of those kinds of things that make for a a, a really wonderful Tibetan Lama, and so a Buddha. A Christ, and um, and so you know the kind of joke is that the Buddha and Christ were the world's greatest neuroscientists because they were about what they were about shifts the brain in in a way we want to shift it, and that's how you end stress. That is so amazing that when you get down to the science and all the pieces, parts, the way that the brain works, and the answers are simple, and yet they're harder to do than they are to say. But I love you've covered so many different things about how our stress is very much related to our culture and to our expectations and to that fear-based lifestyle. And I thought it was fascinating that even the ads are designed to make me feel like I'm a failure. I am not good enough if I don't measure up to somebody else's standard. And then as you talked about the idea that the one thing that we have control over is our attitude, and that zooms me back to Viktor Frankl's findings, where it is not the situation that matters as much as our response to it, and to be able to let go, let go of these expectations that other people are putting on us, you are not good enough unless you meet X, Y, and Z criteria and just say, Actually, I just am. That's right. And I love, I would love if you would explain a little bit more. Let's talk about this idea of accepting. Because I know when we have something that happens, there's an event, and an event is just an event. I mean, it is, it just is. But then we attach a meaning to that event. And sometimes that meaning can be, oh, well, that means I'm not good enough. Oh, that means I'm overwhelmed. Oh, that means I'm a failure. Oh, that means I'm going to die or, oh, whatever that thing is. And to be able to just detach that and just have an event. Like you said, my boss put an extra project on my desk when I was already feeling like I was at capacity. So are there some steps we can do when that, when that something comes in so that my knee jerk reaction isn't, ah, I'm overwhelmed. My resources are overwhelmed. Yeah, you know, acceptance is um, is tricky. I, it, it's hard, you know. Um, if you think of stress uh, as um, a pretty unhappy state, and the one thing that I think human beings would be unanimous on 
uh, of something that's worth having, it would be happiness. We all want to be happy. And, you know, it's really hard to find a completely happy person. It's only like 4% of the population if you, if you, you know, uh, look, look at, look at the data. And the irony is, uh, we were born happy. There's a ton of, ton of scientific evidence for it. Uh, we were born free. Um, but we become trapped in limited thinking in our own limited thinking. Um, we're actually trained to think in, in limited terms about ourselves. We're born with this uh, wonderful open heart that we allow stress and fear to so easily close. Um, we're, you know, we're gifted beings of immeasurable worth, but often like you were saying, and I have been saying is we feel like we're not good enough. And, uh, you know, there's this uh, ambiance, this atmosphere of joy within us and surrounding us there to make life meaningful and rich. Um, but we've become blocked, blocked from seeing it. You know, if we weren't actively engaged in making ourselves miserable, we'd be happy. You know, the <laughs> reality is, is uh, charged with, with happiness, but we don't see it. And so, you know, kind of as if we've been hypnotized to see uh, what is not there and not see what is there. And so, you know, how did this happen? How did we happen to us? How did we lose that that incredible nature we were born with? You know, when science goes to look at what is human nature, they look at children. And um, what they find with children is children are, uh, they have this sense of wonder, this sense of joy, that this freedom to be very, as creative as they want to be. Uh, even if they get knocked down, they're very resilient. You know, they're fun oriented. I, I was watching this show with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he said this one thing. He goes, uh, he said, but pe most people go about their life, work, 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 no fun. Work, 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 no fun. Well, our nature is to have fun. And when science goes to look at this nature of ours, they look at children and they find it evident. So what happens to children? Well, they get contaminated. They get it uh, programmed, indoctrinated out of them. You know, so society stamps into us the belief that happiness and self-worth, our own happiness and self-worth, are found out there in the world. And, you know, if we work hard and long enough, success is going to come. And out of that happiness, uh, out of that happiness and fulfillment are going to come. And... We've all swallowed that formula. I, I certainly swallowed that formula. And, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, a person comes to realize that success has has come to whatever degree we, we've managed to, to create it without fulfillment. And that's failing at life. Tony Robbins says success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. That's that midlife crisis. And what the research shows is that midlife crisis is happening now in the 20s and 30s. They're calling it the quarter life crisis. So waking up, waking up from that nightmare that's been programmed into us uh, and that's come at the, at the expense of that innocence uh, that, that's a part of our, our true nature, our given nature that we were born with, um, that where that comes from is 
is realizing that contrary to what we've been taught, what society has taught us, what the advertising has indoctrinated us with, um, nothing, but absolutely nothing of the world can make us happy. It's not, it's not the job of the world to make us happy. And it's not that success is unimportant. That's, that, of course, that's not true. But success is not the same as fulfillment. Fulfillment doesn't come from the world. And, and if we realize that our life begins to change, our value system begins to change. Happiness doesn't come from the world. It just doesn't. Not that radiant happiness of a child. And I'm not talking about becoming a child. I'm just talking about, be, you know, asking yourself, how much of the innocence of the child is, is still in me? How much of it? Where is it? You know, and get in touch with it and see how that uh, part of your nature is still there because it is still there. It's, it's in your nature. And how if you gave into it, if you opened to it, you let it out, you know, took it out of the closet, what what that effect that would have on your life, on your work, on your relationships, on your relationship to yourself. So happiness, you know, it, you begin to discover it comes from within you. You begin to discover that you need to redefine success. You can define it term, certainly in terms of the amount of money you have in the bank, uh, how many widgets you sold last quarter, all those kind of metrics, you know, the business uses, you know, the bottom line metrics, you know, they're important. You got to measure how you're, how, how you're, what you're doing in the world, how, how it's succeeding. But there's another set of ways of measuring success, which is to ask yourself at the end of the day, um, how peaceful was I? How, how much, how much time did I give during the day uh, just to go look at out a window and connect with all that is, connect with the world, watch, watch the rain fall if it's raining, watch the wind blow, watch the grass grow, connect. How kind was I to people? Uh, when I had an opportunity, when it's called to be kind to people, um, those kinds of things, those are really important measurements. And, you know, you begin to understand, really, that when when you begin to see that this happiness comes from you, that when you're not actively making yourself miserable by listening to that ego of yours, it's coming out of your amygdala, your fear center, when you're not actively engaged and paying attention to that and letting it paint you a picture of your reality, that what then what naturally arises in you is happiness. You know, happiness is there. You see, you see how suddenly you're going on like how sweet the world is, how beautiful the world is. And you see that the only reason that a human being's ever unhappy is when they're focusing on what they don't have rather than what they have here and now. And so that's another thing you can do is to count your blessings. You know, you could be in the middle of complaining. Uh, there was a uh, a Zen master who was asked, the guy asked him, how will I know if I'm enlightened? And the Zen master said, you'll have stopped complaining. <laughs> in the middle of complaining, um, it, the way you can move your way out of that negativity is to really stop and and look how much you actually have, you know, on so many levels. And suddenly you will, you know, counting your blessings and suddenly you'll be in a whole new world. The shift happens almost immediately. The research on gratitude shows the it is a, an enormously powerful way of shifting your attitude, attitude of gratitude. 
And so, you know, basically everything I'm saying here or everything that I'm reporting about what science is saying about who we are really underneath all the indoctrination, underneath all of those beliefs that have been stamped into us, that it's the world that determines who we are. Um, what it ultimately means is we're not broken, you know? We're not some problem to be solved. And if there is a problem to be solved, it's this belief that we cannot be happy unless things are going this way or things are going that way. Or I cannot be happy without this outcome or without this possession or or without this person. You know, you have everything you need to be happy within yourself. And it's the only place you're ever going to find it. That's what we're we're finding. You don't acquire or earn happiness because you have it already. Isn't that amazing? And as you're describing the things that we that bring us happiness, we talked about peace and you talked about fulfillment. I had a friend who described, he said, happiness and peace are two sides of the same coin. He said, happiness is peace in motion and peace is happiness at rest. And to have that inner peace and to have that happiness and they do come from within and as you're describing this process, and I really love that science findings that this is true. This is not just a theory. This is the way our bodies work. This is the way our brains work. And when we can understand that and believe it, then we can start to act on it. And I believe that the first step in being able to correct this problem is awareness. And you've done such an excellent job at explaining what is and then the next thing is that we need to make some changes. And I love um, the comment that the, the most practical way to change who we are is to change what we do. And so I love some action steps. And as you explained that, you know, we are actively making ourselves miserable. This is what we're doing. And yet it's not intentional. And it seems like it would be easy if I'm actively stomping myself down and making myself miserable all the time to relax and to let the happiness and the peace just flow. And yet, most people don't find it that easy. I loved at the very, very beginning when you're talking about the Tibetan monks and you talked about meditation and how five minutes a day was enough to make a difference to allow some of that peace to enter into our minds and our bodies. Do you have some more suggestions? Let's say I, I've just become aware. Don has just told me and explained to me that the reason that I feel overwhelmed, the reason that I feel stressed, the reason that I just feel just miserable is because I am actively making myself that way. And so now I don't want to play that game anymore. I want to do something different. What are some things that I can do to make that shift? Well, first thing is to um, hear, make sure you hear that you've been programmed to upset yourself. You didn't, you, you've been actively, you know, this active, am I actively um, making myself miserable is because you have literally been programmed by society to upset yourself. And you do that when life doesn't go the way your programming demands it should go, you know, in terms of how you've been taught the world should be, how you've been taught who you should be, what you should have accomplished by now, 
um, what you should want, what you should have by now, all of those things. And you free yourself from that oppressive fear of failing, which is what it turns into. You do it through awareness. And most people think that, um, you know, here I am actively upsetting myself. Here I am actively making myself miserable, making myself afraid, making myself angry, disappointed, dissatisfied, all of those kinds of painful feelings, you know, that what I what I need to do is to shift to the opposite. And uh, the the way it works is it, that, that that is not the way it works. The way it works is you need to get in touch with how that programming is operating with you. You can't change what you don't see. And so you need to get pretty intimate with it, which is you mean means you need to enter the pain. It's causing you need to embrace the pain. Um, uh, you know, and it's really that's that's the key to what you do. And so you you know, the first step is you got to get in touch with those negative feelings. You know, what negative feelings? Well, being afraid, uh, feeling gloomy, um, depressed, uh, angry, disappointed, all those things that I'm talking about, those feelings that hurt and to allow them, allow them to come up. What most people do is they suppress them or they try to change them into something else. And so the prescription is get in touch with them, leave them alone, let them be. Feel them, feel them, see, see see what you see as you feel them. And the trick is, is to do it by not identifying with them. And one of the ways that you, not identifying with the emotion, um, you're not your emotions. That's a mistake we make. That's, a, that's our illusion. And so the way in which you do that is instead of saying, I am afraid, which is, a way of identifying with it, which is, you remember your your fear center, your amygdala takes everything literally. And so when you say, I am afraid, it takes you literally, your fear. You know, what I am is fear. And so you don't, you don't say that. You just say fear is there. And it, the trick is, is to be in the fear, to, in the emotional feeling and impact of it. But at the same time, you're above it. You're, you're, it's as if you're looking at another person. You're disidentifying with it. And that disidentification from it is how you begin to see and understand that this has been programmed into me. It becomes really clear after a while that, yeah, this is, this is, I've been reacting like this for, for what seems like forever. And, and, you know, my mother taught me to do this. You know, my, my school teachers taught me to do this. When I stepped out into the world, my bosses taught me to do this, to be this way. So um, so you don't try to change anything. And you tell yourself, again, like we were talking about early, re- reality is neutral. And so you tell yourself um, that this is happening in me. This reaction, uh, this upset is happening in me, not in reality. Reality is just what it is, you know. But this upset is in me and it's been programmed into me. This is the programming at work in me, but it's in me. It's in my brain. It's running through the brain algorithms uh, that have been coded in there. Um, and then uh, you just 
sit back. Again, you don't interfere. You 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 just do these three steps, and eventually, what you will notice is that it passes. Everything passes in this world, especially emotions. Emotions come and go by the carload, and so you just. You just sit there watching them, and then you might not even at first notice that they're gone. They've left. You know, they, they, they've, um, there's just kind of this space that has opened up that you're in that you weren't in before. Before where you were in, you were squeezed into this tight little corner, right? Of this, these painful feelings. And they, you process them in this way, which opened them, which, which allowed them to pass out of you. And and then what you'll notice is that you're not in a tight corner. Uh, you're in a spacious place. And you might even notice after a while that that spacious place that opens up inside of you has a tendency to fill with light. And that light is your light. And from that place, um, you're, you're in a position of power. And you can look back on whatever problem uh, caused this. If there was a problem that caused it, and 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 understand it, understand the reaction, and as a result of understanding it, it'll drop. Uh, you know what we understand heals. You know what we resist and suppress persists, and that's what you have to do. And it, you know you can say some people say that's all you have to do, but believe me, um, it's a lot to do. But the interesting thing about it is, is that the more you do it, the quicker you process you process these negative feelings until you reach the point, really, where you shift out of them in seconds. You know, what used to grip you for the entire day that, you know, rolled over into the next day and the next month and into your defining your life now comes up, you recognize it and you shift out of it. And let me, I can give you a quick example of how that worked. One day, I, years ago, I was, been doing this awareness process vigilantly for a long time. Pretty good. I got pretty good at it. Anybody will if they, if they step into it um, and do it every day, not just once during the day, but really they meet every upset in this way. And so I'd been doing that and I was walking down the hallway and Suddenly, and everything in my life at that point could not have been better. My my book had just come out and it was doing well. Uh, I was I was um, I had plenty of business in my company. You know, my home life was was just fine. You know, I had nothing to complain about. And as I was walking down the hallway, kind of singing zippity doo dah, suddenly out of nowhere, this fog of dread began to descend over me and um and it it made my heart ache and I, I i you know i kind of pulled back and went what is this and you know i i moved into the awareness process i actually went over into a, a room where i could with some privacy and um i began to process it and sit with it to embrace it to let it come up and what i saw in this dread the first thing is is that this isn't the first thing it, it the first time this has happened. It's been happening my whole life. And um, and then the second thing I saw, which was so obvious, but sometimes there's nothing as invisible as the obvious, but the I I saw 
the face of my stepfather, who was a very brutal man. And one of the things that he tried to pound, he did pound into my brain was that th- this phrase, if, if you, if anything good ever happens to you, you'll turn it to shit. Excuse the swear word, but that's the word he used. And he must have said that to me a thousand times with a great deal of force, you know, and uh, that wired into my brain, into my belief system of what I believed about myself. And so my amygdala, just when I was feeling everything was good, my amygdala grabbed on to that belief and said, wait a minute, you know, our, our survival is threatened here because if it's something good, it's going to turn to shit by your hand. And we better, we better, you know, be on guard. And I suddenly understood it. And so the next time it happened, you know, these things don't necessarily go away. But the next time it happened, I saw it right away and I went and sat with it. And now I've sat with it, I don't know, a hundred times. And now I don't have to sit with it. I just see it coming and I'll wake up in the morning, for example, and I'll have that feeling of dread and I'll go, ah, not going down that alley. Thank you very much. I think we'll just move on to having a cup of coffee and looking outside at the birds singing. That's what awareness can bring to a person, that kind of shift. That is beautiful that you were able to bring that to your awareness and then to be able to recognize it as just not true, whereas before it had been absolute truth because it had been drilled into your head. And so this, one of the things you mentioned is starting in that tight, tight space. And then as you sit with it, and as you really heal from it and with it, it feels spacious. And the analogy, the image that comes to my mind is being imprisoned and then freedom. Yes. And so as you're, you're sitting through these and as you're allowing it to happen and to release, it brings freedom, freedom to your thoughts, freedom to your experience, freedom to your life. And so that is another positive thing. This has been so delightful. And as you're just describing these things, I'm brought just the title of your book. Part of it is Rewiring the Brain. Right. And so just as a reminder to our listeners that these, these things that you're suggesting, this process not only changes our, our response, but it literally rewires the brain so that we can be happier, more at peace, and more free. And isn't it lovely when you've described these are our options? We have a choice. And now that we are more aware, it is a choice. Before, we were maybe in it because we didn't know any better. But now we know better. So we can either choose fear and failure and misery, or we can choose happiness and peace and freedom. And I appreciate you creating a map and a framework to help people to be able to create that freedom and that happiness and that peace if they choose in. And we know that you have to choose in. No one can heal without their consent. So we extend this invitation. If you're not feeling happy like a child, then there's something we can do about it. Now, Don, this has been delightful. Is there anything you want to make sure that we cover before we close today? You know, just that um, what you said so beautifully, you know, 
it, it boils down if if it's happiness that you seek, you can stop wasting your energy trying to cure your baldness or you know make yourself more attractive or you know change your residence, change your job, change your lifestyle, your personality. You you know we all know that deep down that we could change every one of those things. We can have the finest looks, the most charming personality, lots of wonderful possessions, um, and still be unhappy. I've coached millionaires that that's been the case. And, you know, deep down, you know that this is true. So still, we tend to waste our effort and energy trying to get what we know won't make make us happy. Well, just realizing that can create a shift in the direction um, that you were just talking about, the kind of life that you were just talking about, living that life, not the other one. Fantastic. Well, thank you, John. In closing, I'd like to share a quote by author Natalie Goldberg. She said, stress is an ignorant state. It believes that everything is an emergency. Nothing is that important. Today, I invite our listeners to end stress. See you next time on Linda's Corner. Thanks for listening. Please share and subscribe to help us reach new listeners. And if you'd like to heal your life from the inside out, there is a free video series at HopeForHealingFoundation.org. Just click on the free stuff tab. I also invite you to grab a copy of one of my books, like Crushed, A Journey Through Depression, and You Got This, an action plan to calm fear, anxiety, worry, and stress. See you next time on Linda's Corner. 